If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. We have resumed now our study of Daniel and looking forward to the rest of our time in this book. Um, not without its challenges as we come to Daniel, chapter 7 today. You know, when you begin reading Daniel 7, you may feel much like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz when she said, Toto, I have a feeling we aren't in Kansas anymore. When you begin reading Daniel 7, you get that feeling quite quickly when it comes to this text. We've moved into a new section in Daniel, really the second half of Daniel is a new section and even a new section of genre that we call apocalyptic literature. And certainly we want to give our time and effort and attention to understand God's word this morning. And as we do, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have this privilege every week to open your word. We realize, Lord, there are places throughout the world where people do not have access to your word. And Father, yet we have saturation of truth before us. And because of that, Lord, I believe that we have a stewardship to give of ourselves by the leading of your spirit to understand your revealed word that our lives may be changed and you would be glorified. And Lord, even as we come into passages that may seem obscure or difficult or challenging, perplexing, Father, it's your inspired word and Father, we would ask even now that you would help us by your spirit to understand its meaning and application that our lives may look more and more like Christ and that you would get glory. So Father, we commit this time to you and ask for you to help us in it and change us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. When it comes to traveling, I, I like to use a GPS, but I much prefer having a map. There's nothing like opening that map and seeing from beginning to end kind of your path, the journey in which you're going to make. And it's okay as you're doing the GPS thing that you're bogged down in the details step by step and going through that journey because you need the details to get you ultimately to your final destination. However, I think it is just helpful in general to have a map. I'm one of those that before I go somewhere, I like to kind of look at the map beginning to end, see what roads we're gonna be on so that I have a mental image in my brain of where we're going. Because if that GPS goes down, I'm still gonna get us there by God's grace. Well, textually speaking, Daniel chapter seven is more like a map than it is a GPS. It kind of gives us that bigger picture of, of what's going on. And certainly we're gonna get down into GPS-like details as we make our way through out the rest of the book of Daniel. But Daniel chapter seven really serves as that map-like snapshot picture of human history of where things have been, where things are going to their final destination. As I said a moment ago, we 
come to a new section of sorts in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, we know, is comprised of, of... actually two different languages. We have Hebrew and Aramaic. In chapter two, we begin this Aramaic section that now ends with this this chapter. Many times people think of of, of that being used in order to communicate more universal truths to people in this Aramaic language, and then it will return to Hebrew later on, although we have it all in English, thankfully. Um, But when we come to Daniel chapter seven, we not only come to the ending of Aramaic writing, as far as the language in which it was written, but we begin a new section because we're moving out of narrative passages into what's called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, not only can it be hard to pronounce, but it can be hard to understand. We find it in Daniel, especially the rest of the book of Daniel. We find it in the book of Revelation, some in Zechariah, and maybe a few other places, maybe even in Ezekiel. Two things to say about apocalyptic literature. One, it's an important genre of the Bible that the Holy Spirit inspired, and so we should not ignore it or run from it. Two, apocalyptic literature can be so intriguing that we overindulge ourselves in it, attempting to squeeze out meaning and application in every detail that was never intended. There's just two words of observation before we jump into apocalyptic literature. It can be intimidating, so some are, so some would end the sermon series after chapter six. Let's move on to another book. Not us, we're not doing that inspired scripture. We need to give our attention to it. But at the same time, we need to realize that it's tempting for some, not necessarily everyone, for some to be so mesmerized by it that we want to try to apply the every word and every symbol to every little thing that we can fathom. And certainly people have done that. We need to also understand that when we approach this kind of literature, just like any other genre of the Bible, that we're not going to interpret it the same way we would narrative, for example. You're not gonna read a narrative passage and take the same principles of interpretation and apply it to apocalyptic literature. You don't read any other book that way or any other magazine or literature. There's a lot of symbolism in apocalyptic literature. And we need to understand that to see something symbolically is not to spiritualize a text, not at all. But rather, in apocalyptic literature, a symbol has a, a meaning. It has a, it has a purpose to fulfill. And just because we may take something symbolically doesn't mean that we aren't taking it literally. We are taking it literally as it was intended to be written. So we need to understand that these symbols and these visions can be hard, but they are written. Apocalyptic literature includes oftentimes symbols and visions and things that are supernatural of sorts to explain spiritual realities in order to encourage suffering people. It's really the purpose of apocalyptic literature. It's a heavily symbolic and literature that's full of visions that explain spiritual realities in order to encourage a suffering people. 
One writer put it, apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology of hope. To those the world has marginalized and reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. And that's exactly what Daniel chapter seven communicates. In all its symbolism and all of its strange visions, it serves It served and it serves to encourage the people of God to continue trusting in him even when we are marginalized, taken captive, and trampled down because in the end, God's justice will be swift and all will be made right. It's Daniel chapter seven, summarized. So as we look at this chapter this morning, we're gonna look at it, and again, we're gonna do as we've been doing. We're gonna kind of read the text as we go. But as we unfold this apocalyptic map of sorts, it gives us this snapshot of human history to some degree, and ultimately pointing us to the future when all will be made right. We're gonna walk through kind of three sections of this passage. We need to understand also that this chapter doesn't operate in linear narrative like we've been accustomed to but rather presents us with a succession of pictures. So when you're reading this, you're gonna be tempted to think linearly. Is that a word? Linearly? Lin, yeah, in in a line. Like one step after another. Date, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You're gonna be tempted to think that way. But rather it presents us a snapshot of a succession of pictures. Even the chapter placement itself is not in chronological order. We're going back now to time period when Belshazzar was in charge. So let's pick up with this, with this book. We begin in the first year of Belshazzar, not, again, not chronologically in order of the chapters. When Daniel had this vision, it's been some 50 years into exile and Daniel is likely in his late 60s pushing 70. It's also the beginning under Belshazzar of what would be a very difficult period of time for the people of God in exile. So let's pick up now in Daniel chapter seven, beginning in verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the grounds and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. The beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. 
I considered the horns. Behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in its horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking great things. And this is where you pray for your pastor. Daniel's vision is one that includes four beasts coming up up out of the sea. We know that oftentimes the sea is a reflection or a symbol of evil. And here you have these four evil beasts emerging from the sea, one, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and the fourth that is so terrifying and dreadful that it doesn't resemble any known creature. At least we're not given a description like we were the first three. Later on in verse 17, when we get there, we're told that each of these beasts represent a king or a kingdom. If you remember, if you go back to Daniel chapter two, we, we know that there was an image that was there in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And this image, many think, are very, uh, Daniel chapter seven and Daniel chapter two can be uh, compared that the four Parts of that first image of Daniel chapter two and the four beasts that we see here are referring to the same kings or the same kingdoms, but in different purposes, with different purposes. The most common view is that these four beasts are representative of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Not everyone agrees with that statement. We're not gonna get bogged down this morning and try to figure out which one meets which, regardless of which nations we're referring to here, the point of the text remains the same. That's something you and I need to keep in mind as we walk our way through this passage. It's also been stated that these four beasts could also be taken collectively as symbolically representing the ongoing presence of evil kingdoms from the time of exile, culminating in a final era of unprecedented evil prior to judgment. If you were to read Revelation 13, we have a beast there. Let me just read this beast of Revelation 13. Verse one, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. The earth, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth and uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people, language and nations and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. You read Revelation chapter 13 and you read Daniel chapter seven and you figure out quite quickly that there's a connection here. Can't help but think that when that was being written in Revelation 13 that Daniel chapter seven wasn't in mind. Again, regardless of who these kingdoms are, whether they're Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome or both, maybe, maybe you could take them well, they, historically, yes, but they're also symbolically representative of this ongoing evil that's going to ultimately culminate in a final era of unprecedented evil prior to judgment. Regardless, 
what we do find in this passage is the characterization of earthly kingdoms. I want to point out just a couple of things, a couple of truths about earthly kingdoms that we find in this passage about these kingdoms, whoever they are, and about earthly kingdoms in general. First of all, earthly kingdoms are temporary. No earthly kingdom will last forever. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. In fact, if these indeed are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, we know that these were historically global empires of their day that held sway over the known world. And today, all of them have been reduced to nothing more than ink in a history book. And there should be encouragement to us as God's people in that light and a warning. First of all, the encouragement. The encouragement that would come from seeing the succession of evil kingdoms is that even the most powerful of nations, even the most powerful of kingdoms that might seem to have present victories in oppressing and marginalizing the people of God will not and cannot ultimately prevail. That should be encouraging to us. Now, this might hit American ears a little differently than brothers and sisters in other countries because we're not necessarily feeling the, the weight and pressure and marginalization that some of them feel. And we feel it here, but not in the same way that some of brothers and sisters feel in other places. So be encouraged. And friend, if you're a Christian in one of these oppressive countries that exist today, what an encouragement that would be to you to know that this is not the end. This is not all that we will know. But there's also a warning. And the warning would be simply this, don't put too much hope in a nation. Even our own. I mean, the USA is a great gift. We certainly must engage in the public square and seek to do good within our communities and cities. And we should, we must. Yet, we shouldn't hold too tightly to this nation or any other nation as our sole source of safety and hope. Earthly kingdoms are temporary. Number two, earthly kingdoms are fallen. If there is a common theme to all nations and kingdoms, as different and as diverse as they are, no matter the form of government, no matter the language that's spoken there, no matter the culture that's there, all nations have one fact, and this is the fact. They are led by sinful people. Whether it's a capitalistic kind of nation or a communist nation, sinners are leading. Human depravity is more, certainly more evident and outrageous in some nations more than others, but you can rest assured that no nation escapes the influence and impact of evil. Doing a survey of history, if you go back even to these four nations or other kingdoms that have come and gone, some of the most powerful kingdoms in the world dominated and devoured others in order to get where they were or even today where they are. Just think about Babylon, Persia, Rome, the Mongol kingdom under Genghis Khan, Stalin, Hitler, Today, North Korea, Syria, evil dictators oppressing and 
doing evil in order to gain power. And as the people of God, what we need to understand, and one of the things that we are seeing even from this text is that as long as earthly kingdoms exist, there will be powerful rulers that seek to do evil. That means as Christians, as God's people, we especially can expect to be oppressed, persecuted, and marginalized. I find it often amusing, not amusing, I don't know what the right word is, but perplexing. That when, when, when Christians are taken aback here in our own country by cultural marginalization, it's as if they're shocked that Christians are being mistreated. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It shouldn't be a newsflash. We shouldn't be waking up hoping it happens, walking into it. But it shouldn't be a shock. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be taken aback when we find out that, that cultures, whether here in our own or, or in other places, are, are more and more opposed to the gospel. Earthly kingdoms are fallen kingdoms. Cultures are fallen cultures, and God's people will stand opposed. Here in Daniel chapter 7, we see this impact unfolding right even here before our very eyes, even as we look at the impact the fourth beast will have on God's people directly. We'll look at that later on. The point is this, is that God's people will have tribulation in this world. And we can debate whether or not there's this future great tribulation and whether or not the church goes through it. But you can rest assured, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So when we, when we begin to un- unpack this chapter, what we begin to see is, is this ugliness of human history. that things progressively dominated by this evil. But, point number two, not only do we see the ugliness of human history, we we see the surety of God's sovereignty. Chapter seven, verse nine, there's quite an abrupt change in the vision. So you get to the end of verse eight and you're like, I don't know what Daniel ate that night, but I don't want to eat it because that is quite a thing. But you get to verse nine, let's read. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. After seeing this this vision of these four beasts rising from the sea, Daniel all of a sudden is, is as if he's ushered into this vision of the heavenly throne room. And here Daniel sees the ancient of days, God himself. Take his seat upon the throne. Friends, I believe this, this second vision of sort is a very strategic vision. It's strategically placed here because we're going to get the interpretation here in a minute of, of the dream. But as Daniel has this, this terrifying dream of these horrific beasts that do so much damage and bring so much evil to the world, it's as if now Daniel's saying, that's coming, but look, There's one who takes his place, this place of authority, this supreme one that you need to keep your eyes on. Yes, this world is going to be dark and troubling. Yes, you're going to see this evil unfold. Yes, these things are going to take place. But friend, do not forget that the ancient of days has taken his seat and the son of man has ushered into his presence and he has been given dominion and his kingdom will not perish. It will last forever. Think about the hope a vision like that would have given Daniel at 60 some years of age, beginning this year of exile under a new evil king. Think about the hope that this vision would have given the people of God in the midst of an oppressive regime of Babylon that brought much oppression their way. Because we can't, I just want to give you a word here. <laughs> this is not a prophetic word. This is just an Adam's word. Do not read the Bible foolishly. What we often do is we want to take Daniel 7 and extract it from its historical context and apply it to the end times as if this had no meaning whatsoever to the people of God in exile. Don't be foolish in reading the text like that. This had a real meaning for Daniel. This had a real meaning for God's people, Israel, in exile, in this day, historically, in time. Yes, it has connotation to what we call the end, but don't forget that this had immediate application for the people of God in that day and in that time, just like it does for us today in our day and in our time. So be very careful in how you read God's word. Surety of God's sovereignty. Several points that we see in these verses. One, we see the supremacy of God. Quite a picture, isn't it? The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was like pure wool. His throne, fiery flames. Stream of fire issued out before the throne. This idea that his clothing was white as snow and his hair was wool, it tends, biblically speaking, to have this, this idea, this picture of purity and wisdom. 
This throne flamed with fire and a stream of fire flowing from the throne. Fire oftentimes symbolized, we know all the way through the the Exodus and beyond, fire oftentimes symbolized God's presence. And then we see a thousand thousands serving him and 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him, indicating his majesty and his sovereign authority. And the court then sits in judgment. The books were open. And we see that now this is not only God, this is the judge of all. As one put it, here we see a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right, to sort out right from wrong, the purity to choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgments. It's as if Daniel... Again, after having seen this dark picture of human history and rebellion and evil, it's now being reminded and encouraged that though things are bad, God in his infinite power and perfect wisdom will bring justice. It's as if Daniel's being told, yeah, these beasts will rise, but they don't stand a chance against the ancient of days. They don't stand a chance. So we see the supremacy of God. We see, second, the authority of the Son of Man. Verse 13, one like a Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, was presented and given authority. Not only that, we're told in verse 14 that all nations, all peoples, all languages should serve or even translated worship him. This is no mere moral king. This is not another beast. We know that we're actually in a better position today than Daniel was in his day because we have the benefit of continued revelation into the New Testament, something Daniel didn't have. In the New Testament, the title Son of Man is used more frequently than any other phrase to speak to Jesus, to speak about him. In fact, Jesus often used that title, Son of Man, to refer to himself. Matthew 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, verse 64, after his arrest, the high priest says, I adjure you, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verses 13 and 14 have a lot to instruct us in concerning the authority of Christ, the authority of the king. Some have wrestled with what this scene is depicting. They see that with the cloud of heaven, there comes one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him. Some will say, well, that's definitely a a reference to the second coming. Maybe. Others think it's most likely or more likely right after the ascension, after Jesus had completed his earthly rule or his earthly work, I should say. He died upon the cross, he was raised from the dead and he ascends to heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. In fact, if you read the text, coming, he comes on the clouds, he's not coming to the earth, he's coming to the throne room. He's going to heaven being presented to the Father. And so I tend to think it has more to do with his, this, this after the ascension than it does with the second coming. 
Although the second coming is going to happen. Oftentimes this, this phrase with the clouds of heaven can be applied, it is applied to Jesus in his second coming in the New Testament, but it's applied, this kind of phrase and this kind of verbiage is used all throughout the Bible to refer to the divinity, the power, the, 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 it's a designation, if you will, of divine power, divine presence. So I think it's, in fact, I'm not sure that, it, that, that this is conveying timing as much as it is fact. The fact that God has taken his seat and the Son of Man has now authority over the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said right before he went to the Father, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So we see the authority Regardless of the timing and, and all of that, we see the fact that God has given this Son of Man, we know who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has given him authority. He has given him dominion and a kingdom. And all the nations will be reflected in this kingdom and this kingdom will never pass away, ever. And then we see the nature of this kingdom. Number three, clearly the, the Son of Man has given full reign over a kingdom comprised of all peoples, a couple of characteristics I want you to see here about the kingdom that we need to understand. Number one, the kingdom, it's now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now, but not yet. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. He even begins, repent, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All throughout his ministry, he claims authority, authority to forgive sins, authority of being the Lord of the Sabbath, all authority in the Great Commission has been given to him. Go and make disciples, he says. And then when Jesus ascends back to heaven after the resurrection, he gives his disciples clear instruction to be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, but going to the ends of the earth for the sake of the expansion and the advance of his kingdom. His kingdom begins small, but it will continue to expand through the ages and impact all nations. And Jesus sits now at the Father's right hand, ruling his people even now. But we know that the kingdom still awaits its final consummation. There's coming a day when Jesus will return, gather his elect, gather his people for himself. He will establish a new heavens and new earth from which his people will dwell under his rule and authority forever. So it's now, God's kingdom is a present reality. Some will say, well, God's kingdom is not yet a present reality. It's a future reality only. You know, it's a present reality or Jesus is lying when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. But it's yet to be consummated. It's yet to reach its final climax, its, full fulfill, its final fulfillment. We await that as we await his return. Number two, it's global. This is straightforward, verse 14. I've said it already a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve or worship him. This is a global kingdom. This is a kingdom that, that is going to impact every people group in the world. And number three, it's eternal. His dominion is everlasting. It's not going to pass away. It's not going to be destroyed. So Christians, be encouraged. This is the kingdom to which you belong if you are in Christ. 
This kingdom of verse 13, verse, verse 14, this kingdom is the kingdom to which you belong if you have placed your faith in Jesus. It's a kingdom unlike the other kingdoms that come and go. Unlike the, unlike the Babylons, the Persians, the, the Greeces, the Romes, and on and on we could go throughout human history. They come and they go, they come and they go, they come and they go. God's kingdom remains forever. It will never pass away, it will not be destroyed. And friend, because of that wonderful truth, we are called to give ourselves faithfully to the work of that kingdom. God's kingdom agenda ought to dominate our perspective. Everything that we do, the decisions we make, the commitments that we make, the the things that we do as an individual, as a gathered people, as a church, everything that we do should be informed by God's kingdom values, by the fact that he is going to have a people from every People, nation, tribe, and tongue, language. And the fact that this kingdom that we belong to is eternal means that the fruit in which comes as a result of the work of this kingdom will last forever. And so the work that you're doing right now, let me encourage you. The engineering work that you're doing right now, it's going to have its termination point. Sure, if you're a school teacher, you're going to have an impact for a period of time. And even in adulthood, they'll look back on you and thank God for you, hopefully. The work that we do, the houses that we build, the roads that we build, one day they're going to be undone and remade. So the investment that we have in this world, as if, if we were just put all our ba- apples in the, in the world basket, there's gonna be a day when that fruit is going to be gone. But if you put apples in the kingdom basket, that fruit will last forever. Investing, and certainly you can do that even through your works, and you can kind of bring the, the kingdom to bear in wh- wherever you are. But even if you don't see the, 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 the gifts that God has given you and the, the roles that we play in this world through kingdom lenses, you're gonna be tempted to just invest here for the here and now. Don't do that. Invest in the things that you've been called to do. Do them well with eternity in mind. And then number three, the promise of eternity. So we see the, the ugliness of human history. We see the surety of God's sovereignty. And then we have finally the promise of eternity. So we come now from the throne room back to the vision that Daniel previously had, or had in the beginning. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, an elder or perhaps an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And I think verses 17 and 18 are, a, they are an inspired summary of all that we see here. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's the point of Daniel chapter seven. And just stop right there. That, that's exactly the point. There are four beasts that are gonna come up. There's gonna be a lot of bad things happen. But God's kingdom prevails. That's what Daniel chapter seven is teaching us. 
There'll be a lot of evil in the world, past, present, future. Perhaps it's going to even culminate one day in a, in a great surgence of evil. But God's people, God's kingdom, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess it forever, forever, and ever. That's our promise. We live in a world led by beastly kings whose future is destruction, but as God's people, we ultimately are ruled by a king who has no rival and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. And here's the truth. Maybe you're here today and maybe you would acknowledge it before others or maybe you would just internally acknowledge it right now, but you realize that you don't belong to this kingdom that God describes. Maybe you find yourself here today and, and you would maybe openly or maybe not so openly claim that you're not a Christian. Here's, here, here, here are the two ways that you have before you, friend. You can continue on as you are, Continue investing in the things of this world, understanding that your allegiance ultimately is to, to the beast. But friend, he's going down one day. In fact, Christ has already defeated him. And if you're not in Christ, you're gonna go down with him. But... The good news is that God so loved the world. He loved the nations. He loved the peoples. He loved the languages. He loved us so much that he sent his only son. He sent the son of man into the world to live the life that we all have been called to live and yet died to bear our blame so that if you would trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. You will be fully pardoned, adopted into his family, his kingdom forever. You'll receive this kingdom. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, would you, would you consider these things? The kingdom is for you if you would simply trust in Jesus. Trust in Christ. That is the promise of eternity. Those are the two destinations. The beast shall arise. Later we'll see. Earlier we saw they go down. But the kingdom of God lasts forever. You know, Daniel seems like he gets it, but it's, it's as if Daniel is, is captivated by this fourth beast. Let's pick up in verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up from before, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. It shall put down three kings. 
He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel has this vision and he doesn't really refer back to the three beasts. It could be that he understood to some degree who who those would be. It could be that he was just mesmerized by this fourth one because it was so different than the others. And there has a lot, there's been a lot written, friends, uh, many different interpretations as to what's going on here. Many different conclusions as to what these beasts and these 10 horns and this one little horn mean. And you can explore those. You can, you can look at that and you can seek to try to understand what's exactly being written here and what's exactly being explained. Here's what we know for sure. The fourth beast is vastly different and his impact is a worldwide impact. Devours the whole earth, it tramples it and breaks it into pieces. The 10 horns, we're told, stand for 10 kings or 10 kingdoms which arise. And then an additional horn arises after that, this little one. And that one speaks words against the Most High. He wears out the saints. He changes times and laws. And the saints are given into his, time, into his hand a time, times, and half a time. Some have seen this as fulfilled in Antiochus in 2nd century B.C., while others think it's yet a future king. And they would say that well, this is the same one as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 or the Antichrist. Others see the little horn simply as the final consummation of evil. I mean, on and on we could go. The books are plentiful. But regardless, what we do know is that at the hands of whoever this is, at the hands of this evil figure, this fourth beast, God will be blasphemed, Christians will suffer, God's law will be subverted, and this influence will last a time, times, and half a time. Some think that this time, times, and half a time think that this is a, referring to a future literal three and a half year tribulation, that time equals a year. But friends, it can also be taken symbolically referring to a kind of time, not a particular length of time. Meaning that the influence of this evil one, this, this evil king, this evil ruler, the final consummation of evil will be established for a time then times it will be intensify in its, in its impact, but half a time it will be abruptly cut short when the ancient of days strips the influence of this evil one and brings final justice. I think that is a safe conclusion. Whether you want to apply it literally to a three and a half year period, I think it's at least wise to see that this influence will be established, it will intensify in its, its influence, and it will be abruptly cut short. One put it this way, there's a day coming when the beast will all be gone and only the saints remain. 
That, friends, we can have confidence in. There's a lot, there's a lot here in this passage. There's a lot that we could think through and just, again, I urge caution. And I mean, I've seen things where even the United States and the United Kingdom are being applied to some of these. If you're reading that stuff, you need to put that stuff away. I know that's crazy. Some think that the 10 horns are 10 literal kingdoms and some think, well, it could be nine or 11. It's just a round number or some think it's symbolically of completion. On and on you could go. The point I think is clear. Evil will be present. It will intensify and God will cut it short and he will prevail. Implications, therefore. As a Christian, when we read passages like this that are talking about this impact of evil throughout the world and culminating, even intensifying perhaps at the end before Christ returns. One, we should not be naive about the reality and strength of evil in the world. Don't be naive about the reality of evil and strength of that evil in the world. We might, by the grace of God, we live in a, in a, in a place in the world, little corner of the world, where we do not feel the full intensity of hostility against us. Sure, we feel the full intensity of the presence of evil. It's all around us. Just look. But friend, we need to acknowledge its presence and pray for our brothers and sisters who are under its full threats. And we shouldn't be so foolish to think that it couldn't influence us that it couldn't have some kind of impact on us. Don't be naive. Number two, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering, then glory. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering, then glory. Whether or not there will be this future intensified tribulation that's literally marked by a little seven-year period or if it's just symbolic of the period of time between Christ's ascension and his return, the point is that it's clear that God's people will endure suffering. God's people will go through tribulation. God's people will be persecuted. Suffering of one kind or of another is simply part of the Christian life. The health, wealth gospel people won't tell you that, but the Bible teaches that. Romans chapter eight, just one such place. Paul's writing, he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children that heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Amen, right? Provided we suffer with him. We forgot that part, didn't we? In order that we may also be glorified with him. Kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering, then glory. And number three, our gaze must look well beyond the evil and horrors of this world to the reality of God's sovereign rule and perfect justice. Romans 8, 18, the next verse, Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, as bad as they are, as hard as they are, as painful as they, they, they come, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Friends, this world will carry with it a manner of all kind of evil and struggle. 
And if we do not regularly pause, take pause and take a moment to reposition our gaze, if all you're, if all you're looking at is, is just what you see in the world and what you experience in the workplace or at home or in relationships or, or on the news, and if you don't take time on a, I would say, daily basis to reposition your gaze and to look to this throne, to look to the ancient of days and the son of man, then you're gonna be tempted to despair. You're gonna struggle greatly. But friend, to heaven we must look and remember that in the midst of all that we experience of God, all that we experience in this world, that God reigns and in his perfect timing and in his mysterious providence, he will bring all things to their appointed end and his kingdom will be fully consummated and last forever. Number four, our great hope as the people of God does not rest in any earthly power. Be a good citizen of this country, but don't place your hope in it. Serve well your neighbor. Do all that you can to pray for our leaders and government. Take part in government. Serve, go, serve. Be like Daniel, he served in Babylon. Think the USA is bad. But our, our ultimate hope does not rest in any earthly power. The beast will come and the beast will go. Kings and kingdoms will come and go, but God's kingdom remains forever. Invest in that kingdom. As we close, a song that came to my mind was a song I think we sang a few weeks ago, Mighty Fortress is Our God, and Martin Luther in that great hymn in verse three, I think sums up this passage and this truth quite well. This is what he wrote. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, what a great hope and reminder that you have given us. That even in this present evil age and even as we continue to experience the threat and the impact and the influence of this evil world with evil rulers. Father, we know that their time is cut short. That even though this evil may intensify and we may feel the full weight of it, the oppression, the marginalization, the persecution, the threats. Father, there's coming a day when you will cut that abruptly short and you will make all things new and your justice will be fully brought to bear. God, would you remind us in the midst of this struggle that we have a hope, that we have a, a hope, Lord, that, that takes us far beyond what we experience here and that that is the hope to which we cling to in Christ. And it is this kingdom that we belong to, that will not be shaken. 
Father, it may be that many of us in this room today, maybe we feel shaken right now. Maybe we feel rattled. Maybe we feel fear. This talk of war and talk of terrorism and talk of all this that's happening in the world today. We're just growing more and more anxious and more and more fearful. Lord, would you help us to press through the anxiousness and the fear and the, and the threats that we face and endure. And Lord, that you would just help us to, to have our eyes fixed upon you. God, would you correct our vision and help us to see how we need to see and live how we need to live for your glory. God, work that in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.